Thanks, Ralph. And thanks for being one of those guys that's uh, so easy to love. I do love you. He's a good man. Well, you notice that um, Rob got through that entire story without using even one time the, you, you, no doubt you notice this, he, he, he told us uh, that whole uh, thing without using even one time the word swibak. Did you, did you notice that? I mean, that is an English word, and of course you know that swibak is what? It is, it is, it's a sliced toasted bread, of course. Nor did Rob use the word osculate. Somebody in here has to know what it means to osculate. Do you know what it means to osculate? Don't worry, it's fine. It means to kiss. And Rob got through his entire story without using the word swibok or the word osculate. And he probably, we want to thank him for getting through his whole story without using the word swibok or osculate because I'm not sure Rob knows those words, but I'm pretty sure that before I crafted this little introduction, I didn't know those words. And most of us here didn't know those words. Those words are very, very rarely, if ever, used anymore in the language that uh, we speak. We wouldn't have known what they meant. They're not words that are a part of common use anymore. Rob shared words that are more common for many of us, like pain and change, and depth, and, and small group, and connection, and love, and people, and words that mean a lot to us, but they're more common for us. But there's another word that Rob didn't use, although he certainly implied this word, and it's obvious that he's acquainted with this topic. It's a more common word, but one that also is not so often used in common language, and it's decreasing in use. Let me ask you the question, when was the last time you used in common conversation, oh, say in the last 24 hours, the word sovereignty? I mean, just imagine this conversation. Parent to child. I want you to clean your room because... I want you to express respect for my sovereignty over you. Yeah, no, we don't say it like that. How do we say it? Unless it's changed since I was raising little kids. We say it the way, same way Brenda says it to me just about every Sunday. I want, just because I told you so, clean the room because I said so. That's it, right? The sovereignty isn't even a word that is in our common language anymore. Now, it's in our thinking, hopefully, but it's not a word that we use all that often. Well, aside from the occasional reference to um, maybe a nation, a sovereign nation, you know, the sovereignty of a nation. Therefore, that nation has the right, we mean by sovereignty, to do what it pleases with its resource, resources and its own borders because it's a sovereign nation. We're not supposed to be up in its cheese all the time. But it's not such a common word, except in... Theological circles. And in conversations that get to a certain level of depth, when we talk about what actually, I, I would imagine that would come up in, or could come up in the, uh, the boundaries class that you're, talk, that you're leading, Donna. The idea of the sovereignty of God and how that, the part that plays in all the things that we experience. 
That's my topic this morning. That's the big word that makes a big difference in this series, uh, Theology Matters, Sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. And I could have approached this several ways. We could have gone to some of the classic text about sovereignty and taught there, which would have been fun, really. I chose to do it differently, though. I actually want to approach this topic of the sovereignty of God by means of a section of Scripture that illustrates or represents or moves forward and uh, gives us a good example of the sovereignty of God. It's in the book of Romans. It's a uh, text that some of you, no doubt, will be familiar with. Romans chapter 8. Let me read Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. In fact, would you stand with me as, uh, as I read this text? Just a few verses for now. Paul says, And we know... That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8. 28 through 30, a text that puts forth, moves forward from the idea of the sovereignty of God. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. So go ahead and take your seats. So in reading Romans 8, 28 and following, and we're going to meander around there for a little bit this morning, God expresses his sovereignty by redirecting every human decision and circumstance toward the support of his ultimate agenda. Did you catch that? God expresses his sovereignty by redirecting every human decision and circumstance toward the support of his ultimate agenda. That's, in a a nutshell, what Romans 8 says. Uh, is saying. You've got sovereignty of God all over the place in that text, even though it's never specifically mentioned. It's, it's there. What we've been doing each week with these big words is sort of introducing the word, teaching a little bit about it so that you walk out of here at least with, with a basic sort of starter understanding of what that big word means, and then finishing by asking the question, what's the difference? Does it actually make a big difference? And making some observations about the difference, the understanding of that particular topic, that particular word that we can make in our lives. And we're not going to deviate from that today. Let's start with focusing on that big word, sovereignty, as implied in Romans 8. Here's a, uh, I think, simple but helpful definition of sovereignty. Now, it's not a complete definition. It's not a perfect definition. This is a delicate intricate topic. But this gets us pretty much there. By sovereignty of God, we mean just a handful of things. First, that God is the ultimate authority over all creation. We also mean by sovereignty of God that he is not merely the official authority or the conceptual authority over all creation, but the actual, functional, currently active authority over all creation. 
So this is, this is an activated authority. We're not waiting for it or just looking back at it. It's, it's, it's happening now. He's currently the authority. Thirdly, we mean that um, this means that his ultimate agenda, God's ultimate agenda, or we might say the will of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, his ultimate agenda cannot be thwarted, and his power to accomplish that agenda is unhindered. I didn't say his specific and detailed plan for your life cannot be thwarted. I didn't say that his the next decision you should make, you can choose to do it his way or your way, that, that you have no option except to do it his way. But the ultimate plan God has for human history and the direction that history is moving based on that plan cannot be thwarted, no matter what we do, no matter what we throw against it. It's not dependent upon our obedience to the specific will of God in our lives or anything else. It's moving toward the plan he has for history, and it cannot be thwarted. That agenda is unhindered. And finally, we mean by the sovereignty of God, though he may use them, God isn't dependent upon secondary causes to affect his agenda. He he doesn't need a battery recharge every once in a while. He doesn't need to call in his assistance or depend upon anybody or anything to make sure that history moves to the place that God has it in mind for history to move. So that's just a basic, imperfect, a little bit truncated definition of what we mean by the sovereignty uh, of God. That's the big word, sovereignty. If you boil sovereignty down and oversimplify it, uh, but in a helpful way, which is what we're attempting to do, uh, I would say there are basically two things about sovereignty we need to take away. And they're found in this text in Romans 8. Uh, the New American Standard translation that I memorized, Romans 8, 28, and goes something like this. For God, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. He causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Here are the two things that I take from that text that are helpful for us. Uh, if you boil down what sovereignty means in very simple, in fact, overly simplified terms. First, it's this, that God causes things. And there's a lot implied in that. I mean, the person who causes things is a person who has power to cause things. The person who causes things is an initiator, primarily, not always a reactor and always a responder. God causes things. Um, I remember being particularly careful in the early days when I was a young life leader. We'd gather together in South Sacramento for our club. And I remember one time we were all praying as a team and we're in the middle before club that night and we're going to meet with all these students. And one of our leaders prayed a prayer that probably most of us have prayed. I certainly have used this language in a prayer. Lord, help us to do this and help us to do that and help us to reach kids and help us to be sensitive and help us to hear. And that's a good prayer, by the way. But I remember in that evening in my living room thinking, help us. <laughs> God, cause us. I remember that very thing. Cause us to be able to hear what these kids have to say and cause us to be sensitive and cause us to be effective. And it wasn't a harsh corrective. It was just a deeper insight for me. Well, this is the God who causes things. And this is a really fun text to look at if you study it in the original language, because you will not 
clearly find the word cause. What actually is happening there is, it's just the best translation we can come up with because you know, languages don't always translate perfectly from, uh, into English. Literally, the text says something like this. God works together all things. He, the, the, the translation causes all things to work together is there inherent in the word, but you have the idea of God's powerful activity to take whatever is thrown in his bucket and mix it together to have a different outcome than it otherwise might have had if it had been left by itself. You have this idea of God, all in one word. God meshes, God works together everything to redirect it or to grab benefit from it that wouldn't have been there. It's the idea of him steering things. He reassigns them to serve his purpose, no matter what comes at him. He reshapes, in other words, all things together, works things together, so they'll serve his agenda. It doesn't mean that he fixes all the brokenness of the decisions we make. His sovereignty is seen in that he causes things to happen. And he's so good and so powerful, so all-consuming, that he can actually bring good even out of bad. You have the nounal form of that same word that's translated works everything together or causes all things. And the nounal form of that form of that verb is translated co-worker or companion or work partner. And you have that sense uh, of the companion, the co-worker, the uh, two people or three people or a team coming together to get a result. God works everything together. God causes all things to work together for good. You might translate that this way. It's rough, but this is give you a sense of the causality, the, the, the force that's found in his sovereignty. The text says this roughly, we are certain, and there's a sense, I don't have time to go into all of this, but there's a sense that we are absolutely certain. Have no doubt at all that God is currently using whatever we throw at him. So there's that present sense of the verb there. He is currently causing. Whatever we throw at him, he's using it. Our decisions that we make, the outcomes of them, he's using whatever we throw at him through our decisions for the accomplishment of good. As he defines good, that's, that's not in the verbiage of the text, but it's, it's inherent in the thought of the text. Work together for good for those who love and follow him, for those who have found their true destiny and place in his agenda for humanity. Very, very loose and rough, but that will give you the sense, I think, of what that text uh, is saying. I love the context of this text. I love this text so much because it's so helpful and practical, but sometimes we forget the context, the broader context of the text. Paul has just finished um, lamenting his own failures. My goodness, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do do. Any of you feeling very Pauline right now? How can I be so committed to this, and yet life comes out looking like this? As recently, recently, I was going to say as recently as last week. Trust me, it's been more recent than that. Make a decision, and you go back and think about it afterwards. What in the world was I thinking? 
That's, that's not who we are. That's not who I am. Why did we come to that decision? And it seemed like the right... Ah! The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will rescue me from this entrapment? When will the duplicity stop? And then in that context, he says, I don't know, but I know this for sure. That God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's how strong he is. That's how broad and dominant and certain his sovereignty is. He's the ruler. And he's active. But the text goes on because God doesn't just cause things to happen in a vacuum. He causes them in response to a plan, to a purpose. He not only causes things, that's the second point. God plans or purposes things. In other words, his causing is informed by the future agenda that he has set for us. He he causes things to happen in light of where he knows history is going and where he he knows where he wants our lives to go. His causing is informed by his plan or his purpose. So those are the... If you boil sovereignty down into a practical, relevant nutshell, it's about two things. God causes things and God purposes things. He causes all things to work together for those who, are, who love the Lord and are what? Are called according to his agenda, according to his purpose, according to his desire. The reason, Rob, that one of the reasons that, that hunger for more of him came to you it's because of his plan. Because I want people to look like Christ. And so he causes whatever you've experienced in life, whatever you brought to it, whatever childhood was like, pulling all that stuff together to cause things in response to a plan. Jeremiah 29, 11. You know this? God's speaking to exiled Israel. I, panicking Israel, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. I got them planned out. Romans 8, 29, later in our same text, he, it references this idea of God presetting the destiny or the plan of every Christ follower. And what does he preset that destiny uh, to be? That we be conformed to the image of his Son. Your destiny, you know it. Your destiny as God plans it for you, and that will inform everything he's causing and using in your life. Your destiny is to become more and more and more like Jesus. The example of Jesus, the way he lived, the way he treated people, the way he thought, the things he taught, to own them. To have them incorporated into your fiber. The Sermon on the Mount, that's your destiny. The plan of God, transformation in the world and in our world actively today, that's your destiny. Your destiny is not to graduate from UCLA or to be an engineer. Your destiny is to be like Christ more and more and more. And the rest uh, is window dressing that maybe helps to contribute to you experiencing that destiny. Ephesians 1 says, you see this working out in Paul's 
theology. God works all things, it says in Ephesians 1, verse 11, check it out. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. There again, you have that relationship between what God causes and what informs his causing. They were going there. And so I'm causing everything to happen here in response to whatever you lay on my lap, redirecting us to there. 2 Timothy 1.9, this even gets really specific because in 2 Timothy, when Paul's talking to his disciple Timothy, Paul's arguing that both he and Timothy received their callings and their giftings based on what the ultimate purpose of God required of them. So you have God not only taking whatever uh, our experiences are, the good ones and the bad ones, and using them and bonding them together and bringing a good result. He also is distributing gifts and whispering little messages and equipping us with talents, all based on the ultimate destiny that he has for us and for humanity. God causes things, and God purposes things. His sovereignty is expressed through the fact that he causes our every decision, the good decisions, hear me now, and the rotten decisions to work together to serve his ultimate purpose for us and all of creation. You get that? The best decisions and the most destructive, terrible decisions you've ever made. God's not endorsing those decisions. He's endorsing his purpose and expressing his sovereignty by taking the worst consequences and the worst messes and the worst outcomes of the worst decisions you have ever made and bringing them together, and without mitigating necessarily the natural consequences of that for you, he's going to take and redeem that, and even bring something good out of the worst decision you've ever made. That's sovereignty. He's independent in the forming of that purpose, and unhindered in the causing of everything to serve it. He causes things, and he plans things. And those are forever connected. So the last question here is, so what's the difference? Got the big word. What's the big difference? Well, this is an exhaust. This is, a, I mean, there, this list could be long. If we were to brainstorm it, I just have a few observations, and they're not all of the observations. They're the ones that come to my heart. Here's the first one. Though God uses everything for good, That doesn't mean he always erases, as I said earlier, the consequences of our unfortunate decisions. Actually, I could almost say that he never erases them, except that occasionally he does. Occasionally, miraculously, he'll minimize the consequences of one of our choices, but not usually. Uses them, yes. Erases them, no. Can you lock that one in? So, Disappointment with God for not cleaning up the messes we create is unfair to God. It's not logically consistent with any promise you see in Scripture. It's okay to be disappointed with God. He understands that. But it's really not fair to to be disappointed with him for not doing what he never promised he was going to do in the first place. What he promises is, I I will find something good even in your worst nightmares. But to be disappointed with him because he didn't rescue us from a financial mess that's a result of our decisions. Or to be disappointed with him because 
of evil still sometimes reigns uh, around us. Those are human result, the results of human decisions that, are, that have always been inconsistent with what God has been saying forever. So disappointment with God for not cleaning up the message we create is unfair. Expecting him, however, to bring something wonderful from those painful messes is completely in order. There's the call out to God. You said you would bring something good, even out of this terrible, terrible thing. I depend upon your sovereignty. I remember your sovereignty. I'd love to see you express it here. In fact, you promised it, so I'm looking for it. And that actually gets us to the last part of this first big difference. So look for something good to come from what you consider to be your most significant failures. Look for something good. Now there's a promise. There will be something good that God will bring, maybe many somethings, out of the worst nightmares of your life, even when they're not the result of your choices, the worst oppressions and abuses uh, that, that, that you've experienced in your life. God would never plans for us to have that kind of pain and injustice in our lives. But he's so good that even when somebody else's evil is projected onto us, whether we're innocent or not, he's so good that he says, I'm still going to bring something good even out of that terrible, unfair, unplanned, unblessed pain you experienced. I'm going to make you sensitive to people who have pain like nobody else is sensitive to people who have pain. I'm going to give you opportunities to grow in your ability to forgive that are going to blow people away. How in the world could you ever forgive that? Only by the power of Christ. I mean, there's always something good. Look for it. That's one of the big differences in understanding sovereignty. Second, I love the fact that it's not possible then to make a decision that keeps you from an effective and promising future with God. Now, that's a dangerous statement to make because I don't mean to endorse passivity. What the heck? I don't have to think. I don't have to plan. I don't have to make wise decisions. I don't have to seek white counsel. Never have to read Proverbs. Never have to read Scripture because no matter what I do, no matter how badly I mess it up, God can bring good out of it. It's not what we're saying, obviously, okay? But there are folks who believe the lie that everybody else has a promising future in their walk with God, but they don't because their secrets are pretty severe and dark. Sovereignty means you can never mess it up so badly that you are kept from an effective, promising future with God. No matter what we bring to the table, how much it stains the hardware, God will bring something good. I can use even that, he would say to you. In fact, that's what he's saying to you today. I can use even that. You and I both wish you would have chosen differently or this wouldn't have happened to you. But I can use that if you'll give it to me. Let me craft you with your pain. Let me rebuild you because of your loss. It's not possible to make a decision that keeps you from an effective, promising future with God. Third of four that I have to offer you and then we'll finish. 
Think of this. If God's sovereignty allows him to bring good out of our worst decisions, imagine what he can do with our best ones. That's kind of a fun thought. If you are so good that you can bring good out of the bad that I introduce into my own life or the bad that somebody else introduces into my life, what can you do with my good and wise and biblical and thoughtful decisions? If you're so good you can bring positive stuff out of destructive stuff, my goodness, what can you do with the healthy experiences I've had in my life? This is really going to be fun. When the, the sky is the limit. You think about that that way? If he's so good that he can bring good out of the bad, what could he do with the good that we offer? The wise decisions we make. And I suppose this last big different statement is connected to the previous ones. Maybe they come out of it. And that is that the sovereignty of God in this big difference section frees his followers to live by faith to reject a life of fear. In other words, the sovereignty of God allows life to become an adventure again. The sovereignty of God gives us great security. And from that security, we say, I am going to think through good decisions. I am going to live and make faith decisions. I'm going to live the healthy kind of craziness and not the unhealthy, disturbing uh, kind of craziness. I'm going to live crazy in the way I forgive. I'm going to live crazily, I guess would be the right way to put it, in the way I give. I'm going to invest my life into something that cannot make sense except in the economy of God. How can you feel free to do that? What makes you free to go on an adventure like that? The sovereignty of God. He causes things to happen and he plans things and then he causes stuff that moves us toward his plan. I'm free to live like life is an adventure the way Christ wanted us to live it. I'm free to be like Jesus. Why? Because no one will ever pull him off his throne. There will never be a successful coup. Not against our sovereign. Gives life freedom. Can you, can you catch that? Just some of the big difference made by that big word. I think the rest of Romans 8 might even be the most powerful so what of the entire discussion. Listen to this. I mean, really, really listen to this. All the same context. Paul starting out, oh man, the things I want to do, I don't do. Don't do, I want to do. You know what I mean. (laughs) Who's going to rescue me from this? I'm sure of this. God brings good even out of my worst decisions. And then he jumps in on this. What then shall we say in response to these things? We've sung this already. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen since he's sovereign? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn since he's sovereign? No one, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. So there you have that reference. You have a reference earlier to the Holy Spirit interceding 
for the church. And now you have the Son of God, the second person with the Trinity, praying for you. 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or terrible decision and the consequences of it separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This spoken by a guy who only sentences earlier was struggling with the idea that he's way less than he dreams of being. That he lives a life of duplicity from time to time, at least in the details. And he's still convinced because of the sovereignty of God, the God who causes things and the God who plans things, that nobody can separate him from God's love. And that's because of the reign of the Lord who causes and plans who works all things together to good for those who are called according to the destiny he has prescribed for the world and the people he created. I'm thinking that maybe it's time we reintroduce that word sovereignty into common language. And if not in our habits of speech, at least in our habits of life. I'm going to give you a chance to respond And I'm just going to ask you to stand and we're going to end with this prayer. And I'll pray and you respond uh, in silent prayer. But this is, we're going to pray based on one of the prayers of A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God. Uh, His chapter here that we're using isn't specifically about sovereignty, but the freedom that comes from recognizing the sovereignty of God. It's entitled The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. So it's as much about lordship, the the reign of God over our decisions as it is about the ultimate sovereignty of God. But let's pray using many of the same words and phrases he used in response. Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I want to know you and all that's contained there, but my coward heart, God, fears to believe in sovereignty. It fears trusting your plan. It fears experiencing what you might cause. As I'm quiet before you, will you correct that in me? At least correct it for today. I cannot part with those things without inward bleeding. And I'm not trying to hide from you the terror of the separation. I come trembling, but I do come, God. Root from my heart all these things, all these fears, all these old ways of thinking that I have cherished so long, which have become a very part of my living self. 
root from my heart, all of that so that I might enter and dwell there with you and you with me without rival. And then shall you make the place of your feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it. For yourself, you will be the light of it. And there will be no night there. Would you do that, O sovereign God? You know what, God? Go ahead and cause. And go ahead and plan. Just cause and plan at the same time you breathe power upon me, you might pray, to yield to what you cause, the hunger for what you plan, and to participate in those things. In the name of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.